0: And welcome to part two of July's After Dark. I'm Gemma. And I'm Emily. Last time Gemma looked
1: at the Vatican and its secrets, and this week in a slightly related, but I guess not really, topic I'm going to be talking about grave robbing. Heads up, if you have a weak stomach for gore,
0: you may not want to be listening to this one. Not you, you have to stay. I mean, that's just me. Okay, what is grave robbing? And as an archaeologist, I guess you know.
1: That fine line of when does grave robbing stop being grave robbing and become archaeology? No one has answered me that yet. So, historically, grave robberies and the subsequent body trafficking for profit were known as distinctly Anglo Saxon phenomena. In Central Europe, the authorities usually distributed unclaimed corpses to medical schools for them to then do their experiments on and do their learning. But in countries such as the United States, there was no such mechanism and there was also a shortage in both England and Scotland. So medical schools needing dissection material acquired corpses the best way that they could, which was by sending janitors, students and medical doctors to rob fresh graves. Now, this wasn't exactly legal and it was technically a misdemeanour offence, but it was very seldom prosecuted because politicians protected it in the name of, quote, common good. And the police looks the other way unless otherwise forced to take action and lawyers argued that because the previous occupant had vacated the body. Its ownership was then in doubt as there was no victim or so the lawyers would contend unless the cemetery then sued whoever was robbing the grave, which never happened because many were actually in cahoots with the perpetrators. It also wasn't a crime that was only done between the 1700s and the 1800s. As early as the 1400s, scientists and artists like Leonardo da Vinci studied the bodies of the dead to better understand the musculature and subtle structures. In 1536, a 22-year-old doctor named Andreas Vesalius um, began to dig up corpses from Paris cemeteries to study them. And he boiled off the body's flesh and observed the skeleton and wrote notes and corrections into existing canon on human anatomy. Because of the macabre nature of these studies and the repressive religious mindset of the era, it wasn't so easy for doctors to procure subjects. And often they were left to their own devices. And this is kind of when they started to rob graves. And fun fact... A 2006 dig at the Royal London Hospital at Whitechapel unearthed more than 250 skeletons that all showed signs of dissection. Further discovery of 1,200 bones from at least 15 people in the basement of a London home, which was once lived in by Benjamin Franklin, was also attributed to the same kind
0: of research. I can't get over the idea that it's like, well, the previous owner isn't in the body anymore, so what's the harm? I know, just that, that was a legal standpoint of well, the previous owner has vacated it.
1: <laughs> They're like it's a house.
0: I mean, that's that's insane. See, grave robbing to train doctors, I kind of get because without it, you know, meds it helped medicine come along. Like uh, today, people donate their bodies, especially for medical students to train on. And so you, you kind of think, well, what's the harm? But at the same time, I wouldn't want someone digging up my grandmother and using her. Then using the excuse of, well, she vacated her body. Yeah, I think consent is the issue. Yeah.
1: I think this is why we now have to give a consent before you die. To say that you can use your body oh, yeah. all.
0: And it has to be witnessed by somebody else. Mm-hmm. And even then, if there's anything a bit dodgy, it doesn't happen. Yeah. I know this not because I do grave robbing, but because my other half works in anatomy. That was very close to
1: going, not because I do grave robbing, but my other half does it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which is not what you meant at all. <laughs> also, though, like, I get squeamish watching Grey's Anatomy, and my other half literally cuts up dead bodies for a living. Couldn't be more opposite. Anyway, so, so grave robbing, did it happen in England as well? It did.
1: Uh, There's several cases. In the early 1800s, there was a man known as the Corpse King who claimed to have a monopoly on the London hospitals with his gang. Um, He was described as being a quote, dandy dresser wearing gold rings and frilled shirts, and he would demand exorbitant prices for the bodies that he sold, and he would often steal back the bodies from the hospital graveyards after they'd been dissected, and then sell them again uh, to less reputable establishments. There was also some unconfirmed stories concerning his gang delivering obviously murdered bodies and even selling a doctor a drugged man who woke up just before the dissection could begin. In 1817, he gave up the resurrection business and this is what grave robbers would call, they were called resurrectionists. And he and his partner called Jack Harnett took to following the British army through Europe, obtaining licenses as sutlers, which was civilian merchants who would sell provisions to an army so that they might be allowed to in as camp followers both in France and Spain, and then they would collect teeth from battlefield corpses and then go to dentists to sell them. And they didn't limit their attention to just teeth, as they made large sums of money in stealing valuables from the people um, that had fallen in battle as well. When they came back to England with all the money that they made, um, the corpse king built himself a large hotel at Margate, but the nature of his former occupation kind of leaked out and ruined his business. He then parted with the property and subsequently he became very poor and he appropriated some of his property um, because he was so poor and for this he was sentenced to 12 months imprisonment. After his release he lived in London in poverty and was
0: ultimately found dead in the top room of a public house near Tower Hill. I'm sorry but the corpse king sounds like an Avengers villain. Yes, and... Very often my brain went, cop bride.
1: (laughs) Had to stop myself myself writing that a couple of times. I can see that. I mean, he sounds like a very good businessman. The fact that he would go and dig up bodies that he'd already sold to be dissected and then sell them on again. It's all in the hustle. Yeah, clearly. And also the fact that he made himself so rich and then because of the stuff that he'd been doing with digging up corpses got
0: out, he then became extremely poor. Yeah. It's people's mindset, isn't it? Mm. So, aside from the corpse king, mm-hmm. were there any other famous grave robbers?
1: Yes, possibly the most well known case of grave robbing actually comes from Scotland with the criminals Birkenhair. So, in the early 1800s, Edinburgh became a leading hub in the study of surgery and anatomy, and many of the pioneering elements of modern medicine were created or discovered in the city's universities. You've got Alexander Monroe, who was the first figure of his era to provide detailed studies of the musculoskeletal system. You've got John Bell, who is considered one of the founders of modern surgery of the vascular system, and he is one of the first figures of his era to speak out on the unnecessary pain and suffering caused by bad medicine. And then you've got Robert Knox, who was something of a medical celebrity and he was widely celebrated both in Scotland and the rest of the UK and access to his lectures became one of the era's hottest tickets. He was known to be a dramatic figure whose lectures were much more about entertaining than those of his contemporaries. And as with most of the profession and educational system at the time, there was a high demand for Knox's work. And this is where a bit of an issue comes in, because the Scottish legal system decreed that the only bodies that could be used for anatomical surgery were those of prisoners, victims or those who'd committed suicide and also deceased orphans. The Judgment of Death Act in 1823 stated that in all cases except those of treason and murder, judges could use personal discretion in using the death penalty or not. And this overturned the previous 200 plus offences that demanded the death penalty in what was known as the bloody code. Now, while it was good news in theory for people, it caused an issue for medical schools because, you know, they needed to dissect bodies and they were only allowed... Um, to dissect the bodies or cadavers of those who'd been condemned to death. So it led to an extreme shortage in material for them. And the financial compensation offered by medical schools for getting cadavers meant that some unscrupulous types soon found a way around this shortage of bodies, leading to a rash of grave robbing
0: known as the Resurrectionists. Whenever... um... I hear that like, Burke hair story. I always think of the horrible history song. It's always a palawa getting a fresh cadaver. <laughs> and it's all that goes through my brain. Brilliant. Anyway, what are the resurrectionists?
1: So more commonly, they're known as body snatchers. And they took corpses from their graves, or in some cases, even the morgue. Careful to leave any grave goods in situ, because um, that was actually more illegal than taking the corpse. Because of the money that was an offer to the body snatchers, instances of grave robbing became so commonplace that relatives were known to watch over the recently dug graves of their departed loved ones and watchtowers were installed in cemeteries across the UK. In the US, the United States Patent Office recorded dozens of ingenious inventions to protect graves like guns, alarms, and even a torpedo. Now, the, quote, fresher, the body, the more money it was worth. So it wasn't long before grave robbing then um, graduated into anatomy murder, which is basically murder committed for the sole intention of providing the remains for a medical research and then getting the monetary reward for that murder. And of these cases, the most infamous were those of the Birkenhare murders, which occurred between 1827 and 1828. So both William Burke and William Hare originated from the province of Ulster in the north of Ireland and they moved to Scotland to work on the Union Canal. Burke basically abandoned his wife and two children back in Ireland and the pair met and became close friends when Burke moved in with his mistress, Helen MacDougall, to lodgings in Tanners Close in the Westport area of Edinburgh. Hare lived on the same street and was running a boarding house there with Margaret Laird A widower with whom he lived as man and wife and who was also known as Margaret Hare even though they're not legally married. The pair's first foray into the world of medical science happened in December of 1827 when one of Hare's tenants, an elderly army pensioner by the name of Old Donald, died of natural causes while still owing four pounds in rent. Now to cover the man's outstanding debt the pair weighed his coffin down with tanning bark prior to his funeral and then took his body to the medical school at Edinburgh University, where they were very swiftly pointed in the direction of Professor Robert Knox, who paid the duo £7.10 for the body. While historians agree that the pair went on a bit of a killing spree, they tend to disagree on when the first murder actually took place. And I mean, it's a matter that's not really helped by Burke's own confession Giving a different sequence of events. But it's widely agreed the first murder took place in January or February of 1828, and it was either a lodger by the name of Joseph or a salt seller named Abigail Simpson. Now, Joseph was a tenant who became ill, and they were too impatient to see if he would actually die. So they took it upon themselves to help him along, uh, plying him with whiskey and then suffocating him by covering his mouth and nose, while he was forcibly restrained. In fact, this became their favoured method of execution because it left the body itself unmarked and undamaged for the students who were then later to dissect the cadavers. And in the aftermath of their killing spree, it became known as burking. Now, in the absence of any further ill tenants um, that they could just off, the pair decided to entice victims to their lodging house, preying on edinburgh's poorest communities who were less likely to be missed or recognized but the pair soon became greedy and then no one was safe an elderly grandmother was killed with an overdose of painkillers and hare murdered her blind young grandson by breaking the boy's back across his knee even a relative of helen's and mcdougall became a victim following an argument between burke and hare which caused which was caused by Burke's suspicion that Hare and Margaret were cutting him and Helen out of the deals with Knox, Burke and Helen then began to take on their own lodgers. So in Halloween 1828, Burke and Hare's last victim, Marjorie Campbell Doherty, was invited to stay with Burke and Helen on the pretense that she was a distant relation of Burke's mother. Burke's other lodgers, um, a couple by the name of James and Anne Gray, were invited to stay temporarily at Hare's boarding house that evening so the murder could take place. On their return to Burke's lodgings the following day, the Greys were told that Marjorie had been asked to leave because she'd been flirtatious with Burke. And the couple became quite suspicious that they weren't allowed to enter the spare room where they'd left some of their belongings. And when they were just left alone, they very quickly discovered um, Marjorie's dead body that was hidden underneath the bed. And they very quickly went to Helen about their discovery, and she offered them a bribe of £10 a week if they would keep the discovery to themselves. Obviously, the Greys, being decent people, refused and reported the murder to the police. But in the meantime, word must have reached Burke and Hare, as by the time the police actually arrived at the premises, uh, Marjorie's body had been removed and taken to Knox. Burke and Helen and then later Hare and Margaret were all arrested and they all gave conflicting accounts of what had taken place and basically saw Burke and Hare blaming each other for the murder. Did anyone actually survive them? Yes. A local prostitute named Janet Brown was lucky to escape with her life when she and a friend Mary Patterson were invited to stay at the boarding house by Burke She excused herself early in the evening and then returned later to find that her friend was missing and was told um, by Burke that Mary had just stepped out. And, you know, she stood there and sat there waiting for Janet to come back. And because it was taking so long, she just eventually decided to leave. And she had no idea that her friend was lying dead in the next room, ready to be taken to Knox. And if she hadn't have left, she would have also become a victim. So what happened when they were arrested? The police's investigation soon led them to Knox. And James Gray um, identified the body in Knox's lecture hall as Marjorie. Now, having read about the murders in a local newspaper, Janet Brown, who we've just spoken about, later identified clothes that were found at Hare's lodging house to belonging to her friend that was missing, Mary. But... The police had little hard evidence to prove the crimes had been committed and eventually the Lord Advocate, Sir William Ray, offered her immunity in return for testifying against Burke and Helen, which at that point he was more than happy to do. And the trial began on Christmas Eve of 1828 and early the following day, Burke and Helen were both charged with Marjorie Doherty's murder. Burke was also charged with the murder of Mary Patterson and James Wilson. While Helen's complicity in Marjorie's murder was deemed as, quote, not proven under under Scottish law, she was set free. Burke himself was sentenced to death by hanging, and he was hanged at Lawn Market in front of a boisterous cheering crowd of over 25,000 people on the 28th of January 1929. And fittingly, perhaps after being put on public display, his body was then donated to medical science and a number of anatomy students took ghoulish souvenirs of his skin, even using it to bind books and card holders. And his is still on display today at Surgeon's Hall in Edinburgh, next to his death mask and the life mask of Hare's face. What happened to Hare? Well, I mean, he was released in February of 1829, and he escaped across the border into England, and no one definitively knows what happened to him. It's been rumoured that he was thrown into a lion quarry by an angry mob, and that he lived out his days as a blind beggar on the streets of London. Both Helen and Margaret also fled Edinburgh, and Helen was said to have emigrated to Australia and Margaret to Ireland. And despite mass public outrage, Knox was also cleared of his involvement in the murders, as Burke himself claimed that Knox had no idea that Burke and Hare had been killing people to come up with cadavers, but his reputation was in absolute tatters and he moved to London to try and salvage a career in medicine. Now, in total, Burke and Hare are said to have murdered at least 16 people um, for between 7 to £10 apiece, although the real total is likely to be a lot higher of how many people they killed. Following the case and the 1831 murders that were committed by London burkers in Bethnal Green, the Anatomy Act of 1832 allowed doctors, anatomy lecturers and medical students greater access to cadavers and allowed for the legal donation of bodies to medical science, effectively
0: calling to an end in the illegal body snatching trade. Do you know what got me, like, listening to that? Mm. Burke and Hare are almost cult figures now. Like, I think there was a movie a few years ago about them that was a comedy.
1: Yeah, Simon Pegg one.
0: Yeah. And, you know, like I said earlier, that there was a horrible history song about it. And we kind of chuckle a bit about it, but we forget that they killed actual people. Yeah, in not so nice ways. In in not so nice ways, for money. And it's amazing how it's kind of become disconnected. Yeah. If that makes sense. I think it's because of how it ended that you kind of get the
1: comedy factor from it, because they just sound like a shambles by the end of it, where they're just pointing the finger at each other and trying to get out of it. But actually, they were very well-thought-out murders. You know, they yeah. picked people that they knew weren't going to be missed, which is why they got away with it for so long until they kind of picked the wrong time angle. If it hadn't been for the fact that the lodges that they tried to move between the boarding houses had come back and then couldn't get things that were in a room with a dead body, they might not have been discovered for a lot longer.
0: No, but it, it's, it's that thing again. as sort of like... We talked about this before with Jack the Ripper.
1: Mm.
0: It's almost like after a while we become desensitised to the horrific acts. Yeah. And you just kind of see them as it's almost pop culture figures. It, I, I don't know if that's the right word, but do you know what I mean? You kind of, you remember them, not their victims. Yeah.
1: They just become victims. They don't like victim one, victim two.
0: Yeah. I think that's kind of the sad part of all of this.
1: Yeah.
0: So was it just Scotland where this kind of body snatching was going on? No. So
1: Baltimore in the United States became a centre of um, resurrectionists. There were half a dozen medical schools in the city, all which needed a steady supply of corpses. And the robbers had a well-practised style, which began by shoveling at the head of a freshly buried coffin, breaking the lid, placing a hook around the deceased neck, or armpit, and with the help of a rope, easing the body out of the grave. Now, for shipment elsewhere, the corpses were folded into barrels that were filled with whiskey to mask the odor. And at the destination, a medical school took the remains for dissection. In fact, the formation in 1828 of the nation's first common carrier, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, completely revolutionized transportation. It altered people's sense of time, in place and knitted America Together intonation and, you know, helped body snatchers move bodies along the line. And fun fact, the rogue up whiskey which helped to hide the bodies was then sold on after bodies had been taken as a stiff drink. You had to ruin whiskey for me. Mm. I just thought that was a great fact. Because I'd always wondered where that came from as a phrase. No, I
0: know. Literally related <sighs> to body snatching. I've got a bottle of whiskey, but I don't think I want it anymore. Seriously, it's just like you sometimes. You're welcome. Now, in 1880,
1: um, there was a, the case of Mrs Elizabeth Joyner. So it was a case that brought grave robbery in Baltimore into headlines. And it also highlighted the State University's central role within grave robbing. The story begins with Mrs Elizabeth Joyner. Now... She had buried her niece Jane Smith earlier that day and she was having a really bad dream. She was tossing and turning and she became more and more convinced that grave robbers had stolen the body of her niece after the funeral. Now in the morning, after a very bad night's sleep, Elizabeth, who was described by papers as being a quote handsomely attired lady from a wealthy and respectable family, went to the Baltimore Cemetery, which is a 100-acre hillside necropolis that still exists today, and there in the disturbed earth, she found evidence of what had worried her all night, a crucifix that Jane had worn to the grave when she was laid to rest next to her mother, who had died six months earlier. Now, four robbers, all of which were medical school janitors, had pillaged both Jane's grave and Jane's mother's grave in the darkness, they'd first opened Jane's mother's grave by mistake. And because reburying, you know, the right thing to do would take too much time. They also took her remains, which, you know, six months into decomposition wouldn't have been too nice to look at. And they took that along with Jane's and basically they the school used Jane's mother's skeleton. Now, supervising this, um, quote, expedition, not really sure you can call it that was a man known as Professor Jensen, who was a 45-year-old Danish medical student who dug up and sold corpses, shipping them as far west as St. Louis and as far south as Atlanta. He solicited advanced orders for winter deliveries, and one critic described it as a merchant contract for pork and other goods. Now, no one admitted involvement in the whole affair, and Dr. L McLean Tiffany the medical dean at maryland stated that quote so far as his personal knowledge goes no corpse on the description had been taken there then an anonymous postcard surfaced saying that quote two colored men had taken jane's body to dave davidge hall where the university of maryland conducted dissections students there had apparently gasped when they witnessed Um, her remains because she was nothing like the ravaged wretches that came from the potter's field. Even with all of her hair shaved off, Jane Smith apparently excluded refinement. A grand jury indicted the supposed Professor Jensen, along with Emil A. Runge, a white janitor at the University of Maryland Medical School, and two dissecting room helpers, William Warren and Ezekiel Williams. The medical school's dean bailed them out, and to defend them, the university provided one of the state's most influential lawyers, John P. Poe, who was the law dean and soon to be attorney general, a white supremacist democrat who would go on to expel black students from the university and impose segregation for decades. Judge Campbell W. Pickney, without a jury, found the accused men innocent, stating that, quote, the testimony implicated Jensen in the affair. It was not such as to warrant a verdict of guilty being found to have robbed a grave, didn't really have any effect on your personal life. It had, there was nothing to it. It was this whole idea that you've vacated your body, therefore it's free for anyone else to use. Dr. Randolph Winslow, who was the medical demonstrator at Maryland had previously relied on uh, Jensen's services. But when that source dried up, he began digging bodies himself. And he was actually apprehended at 5.30 p.m. one October afternoon, in 1883 with a helper who was found with shovels and bags. Winslow was a Quaker from North Carolina and he went on to have an illustrious career as an eye, ear and nose and throat specialist at the University of Maryland and even became president at the American Surgical Association, the Southern Surgical and Gynaecological Association, the Medical and Chirourgical Faculty at Maryland and the Baltimore Medical Association and Um, He wrote papers on his grave robbing and it's actually archived at Smithsonian's Museum of American History. The one case that I did find that was prosecuted was um, a case in 1886, 28-year-old black man by the name of John T. Ross. Um, And this was basically because he murdered his mother's white border, Ellen Brown, who was aged 60, and then sold the corpse on for $15 dollars at the instigation of the mother's live-in lover, a Maryland medical school dissecting room attendant, and is the only known incident of Birking in the US. Now, Ellen Brown came from the Eastern Shore, where a brother of hers owned the Eastern Ledge newspaper, and she drifted to Baltimore at the age of 50, working as a dressmaker. She was an alcoholic, became addicted to morphine and opium, and she panhandled, which is basically begging in the streets, around Lexington Market and roomed in a house in Pig Alley in a section near the university called Pigtown because it was a slaughterhouse district. And the likely reason for her murder um, by
0: John Ross was that she owed back rent. It's so strange that it had no effect on careers. I know. Also, who goes grave robbing at 5.30 in the afternoon? I know. I would have thought
1: like, that would have been reserved for, you know, late night, not 5.30 yeah. p.m. Well,
0: you know, know, depending on the time of year, it's still daylight. I mean, October, so it was probably dark-ish around then. But still, people are about. That's quite a busy time of the day. You go after supper.
1: Well, clearly he wanted to get the grave robbing out of the way so he could go home for supper.
0: Uh, yes, a bit of grave robbing, then home for tea. Exactly. It's insane. Words kind of <laughs>
1: don't happen at this idea that, oh no, it's fine, you you dig up that person's body, even though they have family that's clearly going to affect. Oh no, it's fine, you do it. They're not using it.
0: Yeah. Just don't steal anything. Yeah, so odd. So. Body snatching, did it just happen to like the regular Joe in the street or have any celebrity bodies ever been stolen?
1: Um, There's a couple of uh, pretty famous people that had their bodies stolen or attempted to be stolen after their burials. Um, Possibly one of the most famous is Charlie Chaplin. So he was a silent film icon that died in December of 1977. And in March of 1978, his grave was found open a pile of fresh earth was piled next to the hole, and according to a contemporary report by the Associated Press, Chaplin's entire coffin was missing from his grave, and the drag marks in the grass suggested that he had been dragged to a nearby alley and then whisked away by truck. Now, some speculated that fans had stolen the body to repatriate it to Chaplin's native country of England, and it took more than two months to discover that the body snatchers were a Bulgarian and a Polish immigrant who demanded a ransom of 332,000 pounds, which is equivalent to approximately 1.7 million pounds or $2.6 million today. Now Chaplin's widow had no interest in paying the ransom and she was reported to have said that um, her husband would have found the whole thing completely ridiculous. And a police spokesman told the Glasgow Herald, quote, for her, her husband was in heaven and in her heart and nowhere else. But despite saying that she wasn't interested in paying the money, she did leave the body snatchers on so that police could monitor their calls that were demanding ransom. And they eventually got a hold of one of the co conspirators in a phone booth in Switzerland. And according to the Herald, Chaplin's body was found buried in a cornfield just 12 miles, now that's 19 kilometers, from the cemetery, which he had been dug up from. And he was reburied in the same grave, but with the addition of a concrete tomb around his casket. And then we have Abraham Lincoln, who was also a target for body snatchers. Now, after he was assassinated in 1865, he was laid to rest in a marble sarcophagus in the Oak Ridge Cemetery in Springfield, Illinois. His loved ones were clearly thinking ahead though, because the tomb was secured with a padlock and the lid of the sarcophagus was sealed with plaster. While you may think that um, that was pretty secure, it didn't stop a gang of would-be grave robbers attempting to break in. In 1876, a group of counterfeiters hatched a plan to steal Lincoln's body and demand a ransom from the US government. Now, not having much experience with the grave robbing, ringleader Big Jim Keneally hired an extra man to help out. But... um, he made a mistake by also bringing in Lewis C. Swiglis, who was a government informant, unbeknownst to the ringleaders. Now, when the would-be thieves made their move, secret service agents were laying in wait in the cemetery, and while the gang did manage to saw through the tomb's padlock and get to the coffin, the lead-lined lid was actually too heavy for them to lift, and that's when authorities swept in. The gang was arrested, and Lincoln's remains were buried more securely in a steel cage underneath 400 pounds of cement so i'm not sure that anyone is getting into them anytime soon and my last example wasn't exactly grave robbing but it was taking something from the dead so romantic poet percy shelley died in a shipwreck in 1822 and his body was cremated on on an italian beach but before his body was entirely consumed by flames one of his friends decided to retrieve his heart from the funeral pyre now accounts of the events differ especially where Shelley's friend and biographer edward triali who was known for embellishing his tales is concerned but he claims to have plucked the poet's heart out from the flames flames and eventually returned it to Shelley's widow mary what made me interested in this non grave robbing was that scholars um, think it's more possible that he actually plucked out the poet's liver because that was more likely to be waterlogged and then, you know, survive the flames. Percy Shelley's ashes were interred in the Protestant cemetery in Rome, and Mary Shelley kept hold of the heart, possibly the liver, wrapped up in a silk shroud in her desk drawer until she died, after which it was buried in the family, family vault in St. Peter's
0: churchyard in Bournemouth. I mean, I think you could ransom a corpse back, but kind of thinking about it now, it, it sort of makes sense. Because of the emotiveness of it, which is is kind of like this argument of um, museums having bodies on display, Mm -hmm. you know, we forget that they're not artefacts, they were once people.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, you have this idea of ransoming a body, but then you also have this idea of grave robbing because they're not using the body and therefore there's no victim. But then if you want to ransom a body, there clearly is a victim because you're trying to ransom it back to someone. Like, it's completely polar opposites. Oh, 100%.
0: But it is amazing how attached we are to the body of a loved one. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know where I was going with that. I I just find it odd. Yeah. Because it's not really them anymore. just the bits and pieces. Like the machine. It's not the person, it's the machine. Yeah, the previous occupant has vacated. (laughs) We do care about it. Yeah. I think that's why we have so many rituals when it comes to
1: burial as well because it becomes such an important part of our grieving process
0: yeah and we've talked about this before like there's this idea that a funeral is is a good funeral is one of the last things you can do for somebody you loved it's like a last act of love yeah and so you don't want that disturbed i am
1: very glad that we don't have to deal with grave robbing now though although the idea that's an american just put a torpedo into their grave so that if anyone tried to rob them is
0: amazing it does about sum it up doesn't it It but you see that though sometimes like in cemeteries they have like metal cages across graves
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, so people are obviously concerned about it
1: yeah i still like to think that they're concerned that people are going to rise from the dead i mean that too you know, rather than think people are going to get in there. I like to think it be the opposite way around.
0: <laughs> no, nope, not having Anne and Ellie come back, not a chance. <laughs> Didn't like her when she was alive, don't want her as dead. I think the thing is, nowadays, when you hear of grave robbing, it's not the bodies that are taken, it's things put in with the body. Yeah. Um, or things taken from actual graves, like there was... An account in like a local paper a couple of years ago. Uh, these people had lost their son. Like he was only about three or four. They put toys on his grave, and somebody mm. had taken them. And not even another child who wouldn't understand. Like there was CCTV, or they found out who it was. Like I don't really remember now. And it was like an adult, like a guy. He just took them. Yeah. I think that's. Today grave robbing is different because it's more about things than the body. Yeah. You, you know, because people are buried with their with their jewellery or or what whatever now. Yeah. It's how it's kind of evolved, I guess. Yeah. Whereas before they would completely leave
1: things because that was more illegal than taking the body. Yeah. Well, it always confuses me because obviously that was a time where religion was more prevalent and obviously the places that we've looked at are very christian based and this whole idea that you need your body to rise again and the fact that they were then robbing graves and having arguments the fact that the person had vacated the body even though they had this core belief that the body was needed later on and that's why they were all buried
0: is mind-boggling isn't it mm yes like if the bodies were taken for medical schools maybe it's more that science versus religion thing maybe who knows it's very odd what we're saying is don't rob graves and especially don't rob them at five thirty in the afternoon that's just asking to get caught and i think
1: digging up a grave before you eat your dinner is really going to put you off your dinner yeah Ugh. hard pass not a career path that
0: i would like to take thank you says the archaeologist it's different they're not squishy <laughs> oh no cuz you're going to like no they're not the moist skeleton inside of us <laughs> it is a weird fact to think your skeleton inside you is wet thank you for that welcome oh, i mean never sleep again <laughs> Thank you for ruining whiskey and my skeleton for me. You're very welcome. Just a quick reminder that we are taking August off, but you have one more podcast to come, and that is our bonus Black Widow powwow. So as always, take care of yourselves and each other.